Hi, welcome to the Anti-People Pleasing Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Westwood, the codependency coach. Each week, I'll be answering your questions on codependency, people-pleasing, and dysfunctional relationships submitted to me via Instagram. Follow me on the gram at Joe Westwood to submit your questions in my stories every Monday. You can also click the link in the show notes to take you straight there. So my loves, let's begin. Before I get into this first question, I want to give you a content warning. I talk about drug use and addiction in the family home, and there is a brief and undetailed mention of various forms of abuse and trauma. But for the most part of this question and answer, we will be discussing infidelity. I understand that this is something many of you will have experienced and it can be quite triggering to listen to. So if you need to, please take care of yourself and skip ahead the first 15 minutes or so. Here's the question from our listener who wanted to stay anonymous. She says, I set up this secret account because I'm embarrassed and ashamed. I'm in love with a married man who will never leave his wife. I end it and he pulls me back in and even though he's not promising me a future, I can't let go of him. I believe I'm a classic codependent. My parents were drug addicts. I started a relationship with a narcissist when I was 14 and spent 18 years with him. Lots of emotional abuse, gambling, cheating, lies. And I finally got away from that when he left me for another woman and now I'm stuck in this and I don't have the emotional stability to get out. I'm terrified to not have him in my life and be alone. Please help. Okay, so I'm giving you the heads up here. I am coming at this question with only compassion for the questioner. Of course, it's not the most sound moral decision to continue a relationship with a married man, but I am 100% not interested in shaming anyone around their mistakes, especially when we understand the reasons why someone would struggle to extract themselves from a situation like this. And I hope that you can understand why this is my perspective. And as I mentioned at the top, I know that depending on your personal experiences, discussing this subject matter from a kind perspective might be triggering for you. But I want to take this opportunity to invite you to have an open mind if that's something that you feel you can do so that perhaps you can start to understand why somebody might stay stuck in this sort of situation with a more compassionate perspective, even if you have been the victim of someone else's lies and betrayal. I also want to share before I get into the specifics of this question that one of the effects of my codependency in the past has been me being unfaithful in my relationships. So as is often the case, I am very much speaking from a place of experience and never judgment. So our lovely listener here has correctly identified the origins of her codependency and that she was brought up in a home with parents who were drug addicts. Codependency is a learned behaviour and a coping mechanism developed to deal with various levels of trauma both little t and big t trauma. So big t trauma is anything which puts your life in danger or makes you fear for your physical safety, such as physical or sexual abuse, living in a war zone, a car or airplane crash, or a life-threatening illness. Little t trauma is all the other stuff which affects most of us, but for the most part is very normalised and therefore minimised. 
This could look like your parents getting divorced, living in a high conflict home. That's where there's lots of anger and shouting, being brought up around addiction, financial instability, or having emotionally unavailable or neglectful parents. And as it's very topical on this podcast, having either a codependent or a narcissistic parent, and most often one of each. Since this question was sent in, I've also had a conversation with our listener and gained some extra insights into her story. So I know that growing up, her parents' drug addiction was very present and obvious, and it severely affected their finances as a family and, of course, her parents' ability to be present as parents. As anyone who has ever had any sort of relationship with an addict will tell you, the addiction always comes first. So yes, it's totally possible to be loved by an addict, but the addiction will always be more important, even than their own children. When you are brought up in this sort of environment, it's very high stress because it's inherently unstable. You can't know from one moment to the next whether your parent is going to be physically able to take care of you or not, whether you will have to find your own dinner tonight, whether there'll even be food in the house because the money went on drugs instead of groceries whether your belongings will have been sold to get money for drugs by the time you get home from school. And so it goes without saying that, of course, your emotional needs are not being taken care of. When physical survival is essential, emotional well-being goes to the bottom of the list. And what if you have never even been taught the skills of emotional well-being, which is likely the case if you are brought up by addicts? So this situation does two things to your young brain. It parentifies you i.e. makes the child into the adult. You have to learn to be the caretaker at an inappropriately young age. You should be being taken care of. Instead, you are taking care of the adults and possibly other siblings. The likelihood is that you are made to feel valued for this parentified role that you have taken. And so you start to link doing with value. Hence why codependents are often overworked, overwhelmed and completely exhausted because we are constantly doing the most. It also teaches you that the dysfunction, abusive and neglectful environment you are growing up in is what love is. You grow up thinking love is people lying to you, betraying you, stealing from you, ignoring you, mistreating you and controlling you. You grow up thinking love feels like chaos the famous emotional roller coaster of extreme highs and lows. And so it tracks then that you would end up recreating this pattern in your future adult relationships and mistaking it for love. Of course, you didn't even get the opportunity to get into an adult relationship because your longest and most significant relationship began when you were 14. So when you were still a child looking for a way out, for an escape, some type of stability, someone to love you and take care of you, you ended up in a relationship with a narcissist. Your wording is that you started a relationship with a narcissist, but I'd be willing to bet that it wasn't actually you that started it. You were totally taken in by this person, also a child at the time, but a much more skilled manipulator than you. You then spent 18 years in a relationship and became a parent yourself with a person who confirmed and compounded everything you thought you knew about love and relationships and how worthy you felt as a human being, which is not very. You would have been taken through the cycle of abuse that everyone goes through with a narcissist if you give them the opportunity. And that is over-evaluation, also known as love bombing, devaluation, intermittent rewards and discardment. For all of your formative years and both your significant individuation stages, so that's your teenage years and your early 20s, you were in a relationship with someone who systematically chipped away at your level of self-worth to keep you in your place as their narcissistic source, lied to you, betrayed you and gaslit you. 
had you thinking that you weren't even good enough for them, never mind anyone else. So how could you leave? Who would love you, take care of you, support you? The way this relationship finally ended is because your ex left you for someone else. They discarded you and found a new source. Likely you were pretty worn out after 18 years of being emotionally and psychologically drained by this person. Put simply, they needed fresh meat. You told me when we spoke that even after you split up, you continued seeing your ex. It wasn't fully cut off. It was only then that you found out he was living a double life and had moved in with his new partner, unbeknownst to you. Even further compounding the feeling in you that you are not worthy of a whole, real, stable love and likely making you feel incredibly guilty for being the other woman, though, of course, that was not your fault. And now here we are, with you feeling trapped by a man who is being unfaithful to his wife, whilst making it clear to you that he will never leave her, When you have tried to end things, he becomes incredibly emotionally manipulative, crying and begging you not to break up with him. So it can be easy to say to a person like this, who perhaps you don't know very well or haven't taken the time to fully understand the reasons why they have made the choices they have made, to just leave him. If you feel so ashamed, why don't you just end it? You know it's wrong. And yet, when we see an abused dog that won't leave its owner, we have compassion because we know the dog has been conditioned to believe that even this abusive home means a sense of safety. It's familiar and it may even be all they have ever known. Now, of course, I'm not comparing our lovely listener to a dog, though as a passionate dog mom myself, I personally do not take that as an insult. But the way that we are conditioned in dysfunctional relationships by manipulative and abusive people is just the same way that we would train or condition an animal. And yet somehow we expect a person who has been brought up in such a turbulent home and has never known what steady, consistent, requited and reciprocated love and care feels like should simply be able to cut things off, which quite frankly, that expectation, it's unfair and lacking in nuance and understanding. So my answer this far has been me basically just explaining your life to you to try and give you some context for why you feel the way that you do and why it's so hard to do what you know is right and what you ultimately want. And it's so important to understand our life events and experiences in context so that we can start to dissipate the shame we may have around them. No one makes big, brave moves out of shame. Shame paralyzes us. So hopefully we're all on the same page with Dear Listener's Dilemma seeing the patterns and causes and understanding why it's so hard to leave this new dysfunctional relationship. But what next? What can you actually do to leverage yourself out of it? Firstly, you must start working on your self-worth. And I gave some tips for how to do this in very practical ways in episode two. So go back and check that out. And you also need to get your support crew on board. You need to let your nearest and dearest, the ones you can really trust, know that you are planning to leave this relationship and it's going to be incredibly tough and you're really going to need them. They need to know that the first three to six months, depending on how persistent and manipulative he is, are going to be a wrench. You will want to go back to him. He will find ways to contact and potentially harass you. You're going to need pals on call. You might need help with childcare so that you can take mental health breaks. You might need to book in a regular friend date to just talk and cry and blow off steam. And you need to make a deal with your support crew that before you ever contact him again, you will contact one of them instead so they can talk you off that ledge. 
You also need to be really strategic about ending the relationship with any manipulative person. Often when we try to cut things off with someone like this, we do it in an emotional, I've had enough, that's it type of outburst. It's like those stories that seem to always be in the news in the 80s and 90s about people being overcome by superhuman feats of strength when their kid or loved one had been trapped or rolled over by a car. There's a name for it. It's actually called hysterical strength. In that moment, you feel full of adrenaline and capable of anything, but you can't maintain it. If I asked you to just pick up the front end of your car right now, you couldn't because that burst of strength and urgency isn't there. Likewise, if I say to you, just leave this guy, he's using you and he's the only one benefiting from this, you know it's true, but without the preparation and backup, you can't do it. And even if you do get fired up and make the move, you'll just bounce back because you don't have the strength to maintain the boundary. So to your plan, when you have your support crew on board, you need to decide when and how you're going to do it in person or over the phone or text. Pro tip here, you don't owe him anything. You don't owe him an in-person conversation. And I would actually uh, advise against it. Will you be alone or do you need the moral support of a friend when you do it? then you need to save any communications you feel you might need as evidence, depending on how you think he will react. But you need to put them somewhere hard to access, like on a hard drive or a memory stick that your friend keeps hold of. And then you delete all the communications from your phone and computer so you can't go back and read the text threads when you feel lonely. I'd also advise a total break from social media for a while too, so he can't access you there and you're not tempted to seek him out with your Finster account. And finally, of course block him everywhere. And when you make the break with him, you must include some form of the words, do not contact me ever again. I do not want to hear from you. Do not come to my house and do not attempt to contact me. It's over. Is this a bit dramatic? No. This is what women have been conditioned to think, that a reasonable and equal response to being manipulated is dramatic because we have been conditioned to be nice and polite and make people, especially men, comfortable at all costs, we don't want to seem hysterical or over the top. So we go softly and gently and our boundaries are weak and poorly communicated. So of course, they never hold. It's so easy when we are afraid of making big, bold, clear, unequivocal moves for people to claim that they misinterpreted us or simply to run roughshod over our boundaries. So though the way I have described ending this relationship may sound dramatic in terms of how we have been conditioned as women to act, what's really more dramatic? Breaking up with someone in a clear, clean and concise way and maintaining a boundary which is much healthier for you, therefore leaving room for you to develop a real fulfilling relationship with someone in the future or continuing the generational dysfunctional patterns that you have been stuck in for your whole life in part by staying in a relationship with a married man who cries on your doorstep when you try to break it off. I want to finish by saying, I know that this feels huge, but it is not insurmountable. Quite frankly, you have done incredibly hard things for your whole life. You have survived drug-addicted parents, a narcissistic, emotionally abusive husband, and now this exhausting roller coaster ride, all while being a mom and holding down a job, amongst all the other vital roles that you play in people's lives. I know you probably can't feel it right now, but you can lean on my faith in the meantime. You are worth so much more than this. You deserve more than this. You deserve happiness, 
honesty, loyalty and fulfillment and you deserve to be loved wholly and completely by someone who is capable of that. Our second question today comes from Veronica who asks, is it possible to be codependent and narcissistic at the same time? So from a very long answer to a very short answer, the TLDR or the is it TLDL, too long didn't listen, is no. I actually get asked this question surprisingly often, always by codependent people and I understand why and there are a few reasons for this question. The first is that Some codependent behaviours can appear to be quite narcissistic. Things like manipulation and control, emotional outbursts, the inferiority-superiority complex that codependent people have, though narcissists don't have the inferiority part. Even sometimes the anxiety that comes with codependency might be perceived as being quite self-obsessed, which can be mistaken for narcissism when we don't have an in-depth understanding of what it is and how it plays out. Secondly, if you are in a relationship with a narcissist, which is very common for codependent people, they have probably at some point or will at some point accuse you of being narcissistic, especially if you have told them that you think they are. This is because they confess by accusation. Hot tip, if you think you might be with a narcissist, add up all the times they've accused you of doing things that they do to you. And the third main reason is that codependent people internalize everything as their fault. So if you're researching and reading about codependency, you'll almost certainly find content on narcissism. Then you start to read the traits of narcissism and you feel like maybe you have a few of them, the ones that cross over with codependency, and then add on to that someone calling you narcissistic or self-obsessed and your inherent inclination to think that if it's going wrong, it must be your fault. And voila, here you are feeling confused awful and pretty terrified because all the literature says that narcissism is untreatable and you're just like this, doomed to forever manipulate the people around you and make them all miserable. Now, where it gets interesting and possibly a bit confusing is that when two codependent people get together, because of the follower nature of codependence, at some point, one of them is going to have to become the dominant one because otherwise the relationship lacks in structure and drive and the more dominant partner may start to display some narcissistic tendencies, which are really just their codependency dialed up to 11 out of frustration and the need to control the relationship and make it do what they want it to. If that relationship ends, which let's face it, at some point it's going to blow up because what's messier than a codependent and a narcissist together? Two codependents. So when it ends, both people will go back to being pure cut, straight up Cody babies. The apparent narcissism from the dominant partner was situational. The big clue that you are not narcissistic is the fact that you are asking this question. It goes against every fibre of a narcissist's being to ever admit that there might be something wrong with them or their actions. So if you're asking this question, though you may be experiencing some of what I've already described, the high likelihood is that you're not narcissistic. Okay, next question. This one's from Sophie, who asks, why do I have a compulsion to tell everyone everything slash can't keep a secret? Well, thank you so much for this question, Sophie, because it's kind of a fun one. This is a fun little quirk of codependency where we feel the need to overshare and share intimate details and so-called secrets with people in order to bond with them quickly. What we are actually trying to do when we're oversharing is enmesh with another person. 
And this goes for all types of relationships, friendships, work relationships, and romantic relationships. And what it means to enmesh is I don't know where I end and you begin. It's almost like we're trying to morph into the other person and become one with them. So the dysfunctional codependent part of us leverages everything at its disposal, including intimate details of our own lives and secrets that have been entrusted to us to force a speedy kind of hyper bond with someone. Of course, when we do this, not only are we potentially betraying someone else's trust, but we are not giving ourselves the chance to see if this person is actually someone that we want to create a bond with. And so then we're betraying ourselves as well. As you may have heard me say before, it's helpful in all situations for codependents to slow down. Or as my clients will tell you, slow the fuck down. This is my legacy and I'm okay with it. And this is another place you can apply the advice to slow down. Just try to think before you speak. Put a five second rule in place before you open your mouth. Ask yourself, do I really need to share this right now? Even if I want to tell this person this thing, can it wait? Would it be better to find out if they're trustworthy first? What's the rush? Is this really necessary? Could I just talk about something else instead? So I hope that's given you some helpful and interesting insight into that little quirk, Sophie. And our final question today comes from Jess, who asked, I'm dating and I'm struggling on how to explain that I'm setting firm boundaries. I'm in codependent recovery, like I'm just not sure how to say it, if I have to at all. Okay, Jess, you don't need to announce your arrival, baby. This isn't a train station. (laughs) Obviously, I'm being silly, but seriously, there's really no need to announce the boundaries. Just do the boundaries. You'll get all the feedback you need from the other person's response to them. So, of course, there are a couple of more nuanced details here. It is a good idea to be upfront and clear about what you need the pace of the relationship to be and any specific expectations or needs that you might have around communication once you've gotten the first date or three out of the way and you know you actually want to invest some time and emotion in this person. So you might want to let them know that it's important to you for things to move slowly. That might include boundaries around when you get physically intimate with a person or how often you have time to see them. It might mean that you want to keep things casual and date multiple people, or it might mean that you want to make sure that you're dating exclusively. To be able to communicate these things, of course, you have to know what it is that you want. So depending on where you're at in your process, you may want to take some time to figure that stuff out first. I'd recommend thinking about the kind of relationship structure that you want, what kind of speed you'd like things to move at, and what your values are, i.e. what are your must-haves, nice-to-haves, and absolute no's in a person. And you don't have to be a total killjoy around it, although obviously I am a killjoy advocate in the right circumstances, but assuming that these people you're dating are people you might actually like and want to build a connection with, and not just Tories that you've matched with so that you can tell them off, you might want to practice finding some ways to communicate your boundaries in a way that keeps building connection instead of shutting it down. For example, if you want to slow the pace of the relationship, you could say something like, I really like you. And so I really want to make sure that we savor this getting to know each other stage and then add in whatever the specifics are of what that means to you. 
Matthew Hussey has some great tips on specific ways to word boundaries and communicate your feelings, particularly in the early stages of dating someone. So definitely check out his videos on YouTube. And the other piece here is something that you mentioned in our further chat that we had in the DMs, that maybe feeling the need or desire to explain that you will be setting boundaries is a people-pleasing thing. Like you need to prepare them for the fact that you will be having boundaries and possibly seek permission or approval for that before you will express them. Maybe this feels safer to your codependent brain, like you'll be less likely to be rejected for your boundaries if they know that they're coming. When of course, when we lay it out like that, we can see how silly that is. Either someone is going to respect your boundaries or they're not. If you're connecting with someone who is a boundary pusher, they will also push back when you announce your incoming boundaries. It's not going to make them any different. Which brings me full circle back to my first point. Just do the boundaries and they will give you all the feedback you need with their response. Thank you so much for joining me today, my lovelies. We've had some absolutely brilliant questions coming in recently. So please do keep them coming to me on Instagram at Joe Westwood. I set up a story there every Monday where you can submit your questions and you can also send them to me in the DMs if you like. So keep them coming. And I'd also like to remind you that my codependency recovery community, Wildly Worthy, is open now. For less than £50 a month, you can get access to weekly Q&A coaching calls with me, as well as my full online codependency recovery course and a community of people who are all on this recovery journey with you. So that means a totally supportive, judgment-free zone. Wildly Worthy is open to all women and female socialised non-binary people. Once again, thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Anti-People Pleasing Podcast. Please don't forget to rate, review, subscribe to or follow the pod. It helps more people find us and join the movement to have healthier, more fulfilling relationships. Okay, until next time, my loves.